Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello everybody and welcome to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is a fellow who's been with us a number of times through the years, and that would be John Hood. John is currently the president of the John William Pope Foundation. He's also the author of nine books, and we'll talk about some of those things a little later on. Some of those are fiction books, and uh, those are kind of interesting. But anyway, we'll get to that in just a while. John, welcome back to the program. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me back. Let's talk about redistricting because we've got a primary coming up, and it's coming sooner than later. I'm not sure I'm really ready for all this. But we've got challenges to the maps, and we've got uh, three incumbents not seeking re-election, all sorts of interesting things there. So why don't you, first of all, uh, address the challenges to the maps and uh, will they affect this uh, upcoming primary? There are more than one challenge to the maps. And when we say maps, we mean new congressional districts for North Carolina. We mean new state house and state Senate districts in the legislature. There are other districts at the local level, but these are the ones that have been challenged uh, on racial gerrymandering grounds. They've been challenged in federal courts. I doubt seriously that they will have an effect on the 2024 election cycle, to be honest with you. Uh, People may be wondering, wait, we have new districts again? The truth is that North Carolina has been the font of redistricting litigation for actually sort of four decades. (laughs) And in recent years, it seems like we've had lawsuits that have forced redrawing a congressional or legislative maps or both almost every cycle. And you're not imagining things. That's what happened here. And we've got so, the complication, uh, not the complication, well, I guess it is a complication of adding a 14th seat. Yes. Well, we had done so already. Remember, we've already had districts. Uh, we've already had districts redrawn in elections in 2022. These have been redrawn again by yeah. the legislature for 2024. Uh, but you're right. We have 14 congressional seats in the U.S. House now. Obviously, the two Senate seats are set in stone. And so the districts haven't been redrawn. Some of the districts that were competitive-ish are less so. Others have been made competitive, but essentially the Republicans are almost certainly going to gain three seats in the congressional delegation and possibly more. One of the things that happened out of the redraw of the congressional maps, and as you said, a number of incumbents have decided to do something else, either retire or run for some other office, And that has created so many chock-full primaries that I'm going to be challenged to remember all the names for you. I may not even try to to list some of these challenges, just mention a few key folks that seem most likely to be competitive. But, I mean, it's astounding. We have several congressional uh, primaries in North Carolina this year that have six candidates or more. Uh, One of them, the 13th District, which includes much of the Triangle area, has 14 Republicans in the primary. And that's that seat is going to be a Republican seat. So those 14 candidates vying for the GOP nomination, one of them is going to almost certainly be the member from the 13th district. Well, as you said, they, they are drawn. And of course, you know, uh, both uh, the uh, Democrats and Republicans have been guilty of this gerrymandering pra- practice. When the Democrats were in power, they readily admit that they did it. <laughs> and now the Republicans... Uh, are coming back and saying, well, now it's our turn and we're going to set these maps uh, to our benefit. And so it's kind of interesting. You you and I have talked about the prospect of someday maybe having an independent commission to set the districts. 
Uh, I'm not sure that's on the horizon. Well, not right now. I, st I hold out hope that in the 2030 time frame, by the time we get to 2030, maybe there will be some additional gyrations of partisan control, par good Republican year, good Democratic year, and everybody will get nervous enough that they might be willing to accept going to the voters and with a ballot referendum to change our Constitution to provide some kind of independent redistricting process or redistricting constraints just because neither party would know entirely for sure who would be in charge, say, in 2031 and get to draw the next set of maps. I, I'm not going to bet a lot of money on it or anything. I've worked on redistricting reform now for most of my career. I'm going to work on it again because I think it's important. Well, it is important. And, of course, another complication has been the growing number of people who have chosen to register as unaffiliates. Uh, and, of course, all affiliates lean one way or the other. There's no question about that. Nobody's truly, well, a handful of people. Are probably there are a few people who are genuine swing voters in every race. In North Carolina, they're well below 5% of the electorate. But there's quite a few more who lean R or lean D but will split their tickets in some yeah. instances. And that number, the number of people in total that might vote for a candidate other than what you might, that's still significant enough to determine the outcome in most competitive elections in North Carolina. Now, you, uh, the candidates in those uh, races where there are multiple candidates running, you don't have to get a majority. What is it, 30% uh, or 40% that wins? It used to be long ago, it was 50%. You had yeah. to get a majority or else uh, you, you went to a runoff. That was in part a racist uh, policy to try to keep black Democrats from getting the, the nomination for the Democratic Party. That was gotten rid of decades ago, thank goodness, and the threshold was set to 40%. More recently, the legislature pulled it down to 30%. So you're right. The, 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 right now, you only have to get 30% of the vote plus one, and you are the nominee. Even so, some of these districts have so many candidates in them uh, that there probably will be a runoff. Uh, if two or more candidates have 30%, uh, do we have a runoff? Yes. I mean, you. well, no. I mean, whoever gets above 30%, it doesn't matter if anybody else gets above. It's just whoever gets the most votes. Okay. Um, so, But if no one gets above 30%, then you get a runoff with the top two uh, vote getters. Yeah. Okay. Well, that clarifies that. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Wiley Nichol, Jeff Jackson, and Kathy Manning, who have uh, elected not to... Uh, uh, seek re-election because uh, they are now in districts where they were unlikely to win. Uh, so what uh, are, is there a political future for those three? Yes. Uh, Wiley Nickel, who was in that 13th district that I talked about earlier, a district that was competitive, but now leans Republican, a district where 14 Republicans are trying to get the nomination. Uh, Wiley Nichols already announced interest in running for the U.S. Senate in 2026. He's got plenty of time to work on it. Uh, so we'll see how that, that plays out. That would be the Tom Tillis seat, if I remember correctly. Uh, then the Kathy Manning, who is a representative in the in the Triad Area 6th District, she's retiring, and I, I haven't heard anything specific from her about her future. But if, for example, the maps were to get struck down and be redrawn for 2026, which is possible, I just don't think it'll happen for 24, then perhaps she'd be back in the running and, and otherwise could be a a significant player in democratic politics in some other way. As for Jeff Jackson, who had been elected a couple of years ago to the 14th district, that was in the Charlotte area, he's running for attorney general. 
And uh, he's got a primary challenger for that in the Democratic Party, Satana DeBerry, who's a district attorney in Durham. Uh, but if Jeff Jackson were to win the, the Democratic primary for attorney general in 2024, he would run against uh, a congressional colleague of his, Dan Bishop, also from the Charlotte area, who is the Republican nominee. He doesn't have a challenger, so he's the Republican nominee for attorney general. So lots of people are expecting Jeff Jackson and Dan Bishop, Democrat and Republican from Charlotte, both members of Congress, been members of the U.S. House, to end up running for each other uh, against each other for U.S. House, for, for uh, Attorney General of North Carolina. Yeah, fascinating and probably the most expensive and uh, publicized Attorney General race, in, at least in our lifetimes, in North Carolina. And, of course, we've got Council of State races up. Uh, they are not uh, uh, defined. They're statewide, so that they don't... Uh, probably merit discussion in this uh this current uh line well, I don't we're know. Going I mean, now. we've got more competitive primaries for council of state that i can remember i mean yeah. we've got 11 candidates running for the republican nominee for lieutenant governor we've got five candidates running for the democratic nominee for governor now i think that josh stein uh is and mike morgan who was the main challenger used to be on the supreme court I think those are your main candidates in the Democratic primary. But a lot of these primaries, you know, six candidates for state auditor, four candidates on the Republican side for labor commissioner. Uh, Don, there are so many candidates running for so many offices uh, that I'm afraid they're going to step on each other's feet as they run in and out of the, you know, the churches and the <laughs> district, the district retreats and the chicken dinners and all that sort of thing. I, there'll, there'll be more candidates at some of these party uh, gatherings than there are voters. And it's tough for those guys to get exposure because uh, most of the radio and television time is bought up by the uh, candidates running for the major offices. Uh, and so it's very difficult for those. Uh, I, I guess they turn to social media more than anything else. Yeah, they, they run ads and do other kinds of digital media. Uh, but you're certainly right. In fact, forget the like the governor's race or something like that. There are congressional candidates, for example, in that 13th district, that Raleigh-Durham area down towards, I'm not, not Durham, but the Raleigh area, and then parts of the south and east of, of, of the Triangle region, that they've already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on TV ads. I'm talking about just for congressional candidates in the Republican primary. So a lot of ads have been bought. A lot more ads will be bought. If you don't have a big ad budget, uh, you don't have to pick yourself too much because there may not be any ads to buy anyway. Well, in addition to that, of course, you've got the so-called dark money or the PACs who buy an incredible amount of time. And so uh, it's it's very tough to get uh, for the candidates for council of state. And, and, and in, in some cases, as you said, the congressional races to even find. Absolutely. Access I mean, there's one candidate in that 13th district that has a super PAC, an independent entity that has already purchased hundreds of thousands of dollars in TV ads on his behalf. This is Brad Dodd is one of those. 14, uh, 14 candidates running for Congress in, in the Triangle area. That's going to be a very expensive primary. It seems very unlikely anybody will get above 30%. So there won't just be a wave of initial, you know, who's going to be the top two out of the 14. Then there'll be a runoff that'll be expensive. Well, okay. So now we uh, look at the fact that we're having a primary sooner than we have ever had one before. What kind of impact do you think this will have on the presidential race? You got a whole lot of planes and they're trying to take off a runway that is very short. <laughs> okay. Because they filed in December, the, the primaries in early March, 
nobody's paying attention to it right now except weirdos like you and me. So we'll get into maybe mid to late January, and then people say, hey, you know, I think there might be an election coming up, which means you may, and by the way, did, you, you may not be aware of this, Don, but there is also a presidential election. That's the one I'm talking about. <laughs> and the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary are in January. And do you think anybody is going to be f focused a whole lot on who the Secretary of State of North Carolina nominee is? No, they're going to be fascinated with Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, that's going to probably be over, you know, probably by the North Carolina primary date in early March. We'll see. So if you are running for Congress in North Carolina or state auditor, which we, by the way, have a million candidates, it seems, for state auditor. Someone may have to audit that number. I'm not sure that's accurate. But anyway, it's close enough. Uh, how do you in the world do you get anybody to pay attention? It's going to be hard. Our time is up for this segment. Uh, John Hood will be back in, uh, uh, right after we take a commercial break, and we're going to talk about the new North Carolina Speaker of the House and what to expect from that. Uh, along with some other topics. And we'll all do that right after we take time out for these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. Uh, John, of course, has been with us a number of times through the years. And we uh, took a long look at, uh, uh, in the first segment, uh, at uh, what's going to happen in the congressional races and the many council state races. And we came to the conclusion there's a lot of candidates running and there's a short, uh, short runway. But uh, one thing we do know is we're going to have a new North Carolina Speaker of the House. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that and what can we expect from this change? Well, the Speaker of the House is going to be, unless something really bizarre happens and the Republicans lose control of the North Carolina House, which is not going to happen, it'll be Destin Hall. He's a Republican from Caldwell County, Lenore. He's an attorney there uh, and has been in the State House now for several terms. Uh, he was rules chair in the House. 
he's he's young, but he's he actually has a, quite a bit of now legislative and political experience. He will be the Speaker of the House. John Bell, who's from the other side of the state, the Goldsboro area, who was majority leader, will continue to be majority leader. And they sort of worked that out. Instead of running against each other, they sort of worked that out. And Destin and John Bell are at different points in their lives. With John has young children and so forth. So they, they this is what they come up with. Destin Hall will probably not be a radical change from Tim Moore, but he does have a different way of operating. Um, and will there be a lot of changes in the way the North Carolina House is structured, the committee co-chairs and so forth? I doubt it. There will obviously be some new faces after the election in, uh, the, the, in the coming November of 2024. But I think the North Carolina House will not be radically different under Destin Hall. He will, he will probably be somewhat less colorful, <laughs> make fewer headlines than Tim Moore has of late. Uh, and I'm not sure that, that Republicans will be particularly disappointed by that. Uh, any other changes on the state level that we need to talk about that uh, might be affected by the upcoming election, uh, upcoming now, primary? Well, there, there are several things to, to mention again. One more time, those council of state races, we're actually going to have a surprising number of new faces running major departments of state government. Yes. We're going to have a new lieutenant governor who I don't know who it is yet, but we're going to have a new lieutenant governor, obviously a new governor. We're going to have a new attorney general. We're going to have a new labor commissioner. We're going to have a new state auditor. And, you know, all kidding aside, state auditor is one of the most important jobs in state government because it sort of acts as a it's sort of an inspector general looking over people's shoulders. Uh, that's going to be new. Uh, we're going to have, uh, an, we're, we're going to have, in addition to that, we're going to have some changes in the General Assembly. There are some members that are retiring, or occasionally they're running for other things like uh, Lieutenant Governor or other statewide offices or Congress. So we're going to have a few changes. For example, the, the minority, or excuse me, the majority whip in the North Carolina Senate is retiring. So there's going to be some changes, but I don't think you should expect radical change in Raleigh, in, in the state government in Raleigh. Uh, the one big difference, and I'll set aside for, I mentioned the state attorney general's race, which is certainly important, but obviously if Mark Robinson or one of the other two Republicans, Bill Graham or Dale Falwell, is elected governor, that will make state government look very different because there'd be a Republican legislature and a Republican governor. This is a this is a phenomenon that we've only experienced, I think, twice in North Carolina history, once in the 1890s and once from 2012 to 2016. If that were to happen, that would be different. But if we had, for example, Josh Stein elected, who's the current attorney general, Democrat, now running for governor, if he was elected governor facing a Republican legislature, I don't think that would make North Carolina politics look all that much different than it has in recent years under Roy Cooper and Republican. Did you mention that uh, in that list of uh, Council of State positions, uh, we'll have a new treasurer? I didn't, but boy, that's another important race that's yes. happened. Dale Falwell, who's the current incumbent, he's running for governor, didn't want to run for state treasurer again. And interestingly, we've got a, a, a primary in both the Democrat and the Republican side for state treasurer. I think Wesley Harris, who's a state representative, a Democrat from Charlotte, will be the Democratic nominee. Not sure about the Republican side. A.J. Dowd, who is a longtime Republican activist, uh, funeral director, former law enforcement officer from the Mount Airy, Surrey County area, is running for state treasurer, as is Brad Briner, who is a money manager who happens to be one of the people managing Michael Bloomberg's wealth. 
uh, obviously has a lot of experience managing money, which is sort of what the state treasurer does. But because of his association with Michael Bloomberg, who it may shock you to learn, is not super popular among Republican voters, uh, that primaries ended up being kind of interesting. Uh, sparks are fly. So I think the state treasurer's race is yet another thing that deserves more time than we can really give it today. Uh, just so many important jobs in state government are open. All that having been said, as I mentioned earlier, the North Carolina is set up to be mainly a legislative state. It's a state where the legislature possesses the vast majority of power. Whether we like it or not, that is the way the state constitution is written. I do think sometimes the legislature is intruded on the gubernatorial powers, and I've said so, and I believe that. But even if you had, even if I had my way, the legislature would still be the most powerful institution, and I don't see it changing very much after 2024. John, I've mentioned this on the program numerous times before. We've talked frequently, and including in the first segment of this program, about the large number of registered unaffiliates. In most cases now, the largest block in almost every county, or certainly in a majority of the counties. Uh, what bothers me most about that is the, the number of people that it takes out of the possible pool of candidates. Because as I look at it, it's almost impossible for a registered unaffiliate to get on the ballot uh, uh, without declaring being a Democrat or Republican. Of course, the candidates that are Democrats and have been or Republicans and have been, that's the first thing they're going to say. Wait a minute, this guy's a Johnny come lately. That's true. Uh, though keep in mind that we have been seeing some interesting things happen down the ballot. Uh, we will have Green Party nominees for various offices, including probably president. We've always, always had li libertarian nominees. There is now the new labels, or excuse me, no labels, which is not really a party, but kind of acts as a party and may very well have a nominee for president. Plus, we've got at least two independents, uh, uh, one of the Kennedys, Robert Kennedy Jr., and Cornell West, who is a professor, uh, former professor, I think, or at least a professor, who are both going to run as independents on the ballot and may be on the ballot in North Carolina. I don't know. So we will have some non-D, non-R candidates. And while usually we think about those simply in terms of, well, it's people who are upset with two parties can park their vote for a third party, but it's trivial and it doesn't matter. I think that's not so much true in 2024, at least in the presidential race. The fact that we will have some unaffiliated or independent candidates on the ballot, and some third party, fourth, fifth party candidates on the ballot, we could end up with some very strange outcomes. And so when people tell you they know exactly what's going to happen in the presidential race, uh, I, I want to talk to them because I don't even know who's going to be on the, how many people are going to be on the ballot. And I kind of think that matters in a scenario in which, again, brace yourself for some big breaking news. Most Americans don't want Joe Biden to be reelected, and most Americans don't want Donald Trump to come back. So th these are extremely unpopular, potentially nominees for their two parties. That means there are lots of people, not just unaffiliated voters, Don, but lots of other people who uh, are dissatisfied. And will they go for somebody else? Maybe. We'll just have to see. It's going to be very interesting. And uh... Uh, you know, we, uh, we've asked you from time to time to go out on a limb and talk about who you think might win. Are you willing to do that at this point in time, or is it still, you know, this is a purple state. And while Tell they, for labor commissioner, of course, well, I mean, let's talk about that at great length. 
<laughs> is that what you're talking about? Well, no. Uh, that's not what you're talking about. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But uh, we have, uh, uh, being a purple state, of course, you know, as we said, we're going to definitely have a slew of Republicans because of the way the redistricting is drawn. But that's not uh, indicative of the state as a whole. It's still a 50-50 state. Well, I don't know, Don. I'd say it's more of a 52-48 kind of state. It, it's, it tilts somewhat right. It tilts somewhat Republican, yeah. but it's competitive. Yes. It's Obviously, we've had mostly Democratic governors in our history. Democrats still win lots of races around the, the state in different places and even some other statewide races. So you're right. It, it's a competitive state. Certainly, if the race is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, a replay of 2020, and either these third, fourth, fifth options don't pan out or they end up being sort of boring, then I would bet that Donald Trump would win the North Carolina contest. He would win the, the electoral votes in North Carolina. I am not convinced he would be the, new, the next president, but I'm fairly certain he would win North Carolina in that scenario. Uh, I'm just not sure that's the scenario to be betting on yet. I'm not even convinced that Biden and Trump are going to be the nominees. I, I hold out the possibility, and I admit that somewhat this is my crystal ball interacting with my wishes, but I think it is conceivable that Joe Biden may get all the way through the primaries. There won't be any significant Democratic opposition, and he'll get all the way. And then he'll get to spring or summer and say, you know, I'm not feeling well. My wife thinks I should bow out. I think it's best for the country if I bow out, and then release his delegates and have a different Democrat nominated at the convention. Uh, it's easy to say that'll never happen. It's too weird. Have you lived through the last decade? We've had some weird stuff happen. That could happen too. And by the way, I think that would be a act of great patriotism on his part. Not sure he's up to it, but it, it could happen. Similarly, Donald Trump, as you may know, faces various criminal charges and how those trials unfold in the in, in over 2024 may affect the situation in one way or the other. It's also at least conceivable that something surprising happens. He has a weak performance in Iowa. Chris Christie drops out right before the New Hampshire primary and endorses Nikki Haley. She wins or close to ties Trump in New Hampshire. And then we got some different things happening. So I, I just think there is some play left here before we start picking which of these two fellows is going to be the, the winner in November. I'm not entirely sure yet they'll be on the ballot. Well, I think it would be a good bet to say at least one of those two, and I'm not sure, and I, I don't follow nearly as closely as you do, but I would say that the odds are really strong that at least one of those two might not be the nominee, and perhaps both. Well, here's what I say. I've said this before, and I still believe it. Uh, I think that Joe Biden is a very weak incumbent, just objectively. So you, whether you agree with the public or not, and it's a fair argument to make, maybe he's not given enough credit on the economy or whatever, doesn't matter. The public just doesn't want him back. Okay. However, the one Republican who could lose to Joe Biden is Donald Trump. And if he gets nominated, uh, then all bets are off. And similarly, Trump is a weak Republican candidate, uh, objectively. He lost re-election four years ago, almost four years ago, uh, and he wasn't very popular when he was in office, and he's underwater in North Carolina even. I mean, more people dislike him than like him in North Carolina. I just checked the numbers. And yet there's one Democrat who could lose to him, and that's Joe Biden. So that's the situation we're in, uh, what, a, what a game theorist might call a prisoner's dilemma. How do you get out of it? 
And I'm not sure how you get out of it, but I think that if either party figures out how to get out of it, that party will win for sure. I'm just not sure either party can figure out how to do it. Another thing that is in the news is the fact that uh, Colorado, the Supreme Court, has removed Trump from the ballot. I need to get your thoughts on that, but I need to do it in the next segment. We're going to take a break for this, and we'll be right back right after these messages. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing. Or your daughter's first birthday party. You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. Start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> a heads up before something bad happens. You should not send that text. Uh-oh. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can reverse pre-diabetes and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. And right at the end of the last segment, I said, John... Uh, the Colorado State Supreme Court has removed Trump from the ballot, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that uh, because that uh, is, is perhaps coming up in a couple of other states. Uh, you already let people know that you don't think that's going to happen, and quite frankly, I don't either, but I'm still interested in your thoughts. Well, the, it's not an absurd claim because under the 14th Amendment, one of the provisions of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, does suggest that federal officers cannot serve in federal office. Former federal officers cannot be elected to or serve in federal office um, if they have engaged in insurrection against the country. There are multiple problems, though, with the argument that Donald Trump fits this definition and that the Supreme Court or an election board or some other entity like that can keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Uh, there are many problems with it. One of them is uh, did he really engage in an insurrection? You can make an argument that he did, but it's never been established in a court of law that the actions that he took up to and including on January 6th constitute engaging in an insurrection. One might argue that they were irresponsible. I certainly would argue that they were irresponsible and helped contribute to a dangerous riot. But whether it was a serious effort to overthrow the government, I think is, is debatable, at least legally debatable. And even if you accepted that, you still got some other problems with the application of this in, in this scenario. There's even an argument that it doesn't apply to the president of the United States. It applies to other kinds of offices, but not the president. The argument for that is in part because the original version of the 14th Amendment did include the president as it did list the president as one of the officers that was disallowed. And then that didn't make it to the final version, suggesting maybe somebody decided to take it out for some reason. I mean, anyway. The point is, I just don't think that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to stand for this. 
And honestly, we cannot have a system where judges, or in the case of North Carolina, this went before the North Carolina Elections Board and properly a bipartisan majority decided not to exclude Trump, because we cannot regain and restore public confidence in the electoral process if we end up with a candidate not being allowed to run on the basis of some decision by, in this case, Democratic justices on the Colorado Supreme Court. It's just an, un I understand the argument for it. And as I've made it very clear many times over many years, I don't think Donald Trump possesses uh, the character or judgment or, or relevant skills to be president of the United States effectively. So I don't think you should be nominated. I just don't think this is the right way to accomplish that. Put it to the voters. Trust the voters here. Well, uh, you know, I think uh, a large number of people would uh, would certainly agree with everything you said there. Uh, this is just an issue that uh, is larger than life, and uh, uh, there would be an awful lot of very, very dissatisfied citizens if he's left off the ballot. Uh, uh, so let's just uh, leave that as it is and move to another topic. Um, the uh, let's let's talk generally speaking about the biggest issues that could impact the elections and how they could change between now and election time. Uh, inflation, of course, is seemingly under control. We did not have the recession, so the economy is in is in pretty good shape uh, for the shape it's in. Uh, but what other issues do you think will be important, and uh, how, if any of those change, could it affect what happens almost a year away from now? I've looked at some polling on on these issues, asking voters what's the most important thing or list the top five things that you will think about in the 2024 cycle, that sort of survey research. And the economy always is number one. And when people say the economy today, they, as you allude to, Don, they, they really are talking about inflation. Inflation has, the inflation rate has declined. It's still higher than zero or 2%, which is the federal reserves sort of upper bound. Uh, when inflation falls, for example, from 9% to 4% or 3%, that is disinflation, but it's not the same thing as deflation. Deflation will be prices actually fall. Disinflation just means that prices are going up slower. And the fact that people have had such a large increase in, in prices that they pay since 2019 for all sorts of things, from fuel to food to housing to all sorts of stuff, the fact that it isn't going up much now is that one could argue that's relevant and the voters ought to care about that. The truth is they don't appear to care very much. They're still upset that it went up so much in the past and they like it or not for good or for ill, they blame Biden. So Biden has a real hard time, even though, as you just alluded to, Biden could say, look, inflation rate was a problem. It has come down. We didn't have a recession. Lots of economists were predicting we'd have a recession in 2023 because we were fighting inflation and raising the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates. But even though the interest rates went up, it didn't cause a recession. So you should give me credit. I'm actually managing the economy pretty well. That's the argument Democrats want to make. They've been making it now for months. The public just didn't buy in it. They just aren't buying it. So I believe that if the election remains on the economy, setting aside the personalities for a second, the Republicans will have an edge. But there are some other things that Democrats care about. One of them is health care. This is one area where the Democrats do still have an edge. It's not quite as large as it used to be, but it's still a marked edge. 
And if they can talk about health care a lot, uh, that'd be good for Democrats. On the other hand, another issue voters care about still, even though this problem has been improving somewhat lately, is crime. We had a significant increase in the crime rate, actually not just during the pandemic, but before, back starting around 2016 or 17, crime started to go up. It went up a lot. It's come down a little bit in some, depending on how you measure it, but it is still something that people are worried tremendously about. And that's an issue that tends to help Republicans. So for, if voters who are swing or kind of soft R's and soft D's, if they go into the polling place and they're really worried about violent crime and think that we're not being tough enough, that'll give the Republicans an edge. If they're thinking about health care and how much it costs and, and whether they might lose it tomorrow, lose their coverage tomorrow, they might vote Democratic. And then I'm weird. I don't mind admitting when I think about a president, my number one issue isn't the economy. It's not health care. It's not crime, which the president doesn't have a lot to do with. It's foreign policy. We have a world of woe. We have wars in Ukraine and in Gaza. We've got uh, significant military operations happening in other parts of the world, sometimes involving U.S. troops in the Middle East and Africa. We have the threat to Taiwan. We have various uh, confrontations between our allies on the seas and China's navy. So if, if you're worried about foreign policy, and I am, then you really want to see which of these candidates is going to be uh, the most credible commander in chief and chief diplomat of for, for the United States. The interesting thing about that is there's a partisan divide. If you care a lot about Ukraine and Russia's attempt to subdue and absorb Ukraine and threaten the, the European order, uh, Democrats tend to care about that more than Republicans. And they give Biden pretty good marks on it and the Republicans don't, though it depends. I mean, I'm, I'm right of center and I'm very much in favor of supporting Ukraine. On the other hand, if you look at Israel and, and Gaza, the Republicans tend to be more supportive of Biden's support, uh, role in, in, in that conflict. The Democrats are divided about it at, at best. So foreign policy isn't one thing, it's multiple things. And for Joe Biden as the incumbent president, uh, Ukraine makes Democrats feel good about him, and Israel makes some Democrats, many Democrats, uneasy about him. So that there's a lot of different issues that could matter at the federal level. At the state level, economy again, crime again, and education. And education is a topic in North Carolina where the two parties are actually quite competitive now. It used to be the Democrats had a pretty significant edge on education. It's not so much true anymore. And you can tell because, for example, the last two uh, statewide elections for the state superintendent of public instruction, yet another of those council of state offices, Republicans actually won that that uh, race. And I would think they probably will be favored to re be uh, reelect the Kath Catherine Truitt, who's the Republican superintendent in 2024. So that's more of a debatable issue. Crime still helps the Republicans, health care the Democrats. And all that discussion, you failed to mention abortion. I did because the truth is that lots, that most of the people who vote on abortion, it's their number one topic. They're already partisan voters. So voters who are swing voters, um, it, they don't like extremes on abortion, but North Carolina's policy being a, uh, that permitting abortion for almost every purpose up to, I think, 12 weeks and then limitations after that. Uh, that's sort of an that, that's kind of a middle of the road position on abortion that doesn't 
it makes it harder for uh, Republicans to run or Democrats to run who are very pro-life or very uh, pro-choice. Uh, I know this is kind of not conventional wisdom, but I would submit that in North Carolina, I don't think it's going to be as big an issue as it is in some states where the legislature did like six weeks limits or other kinds of, or even forbade abortions altogether, which North Carolina didn't do and didn't going to do. One of the issues that's sort of interesting to me is the federal deficit and the national debt. <laughs> it doesn't seem that either party is all that concerned about it. And uh, that's uh, uh, of, of great concern to me because I'm, I'm worried about it. You should be. Most of the voters who care about it, they care about it in the context of the economy and inflation. So when people say, well, I don't see the federal budget even on this list. Actually, if you look at how people process inflation, a lot of it they blame on running all these federal deficits. And by the way, that's a good argument for that, that that, yes. that is a major cause of inflation. So it is still in the mix. It's in the mix through the standpoint of inflation. Or alternatively, you might say, the federal budget is an issue because I mentioned healthcare. One of the ways people process the issue of healthcare is, is Medicare safe? Was somebody going to mess with my Medicare? Uh, and so, yes, the federal budget is fundamentally an area where Congress and the White House, both parties, have failed miserably. We're running gigantic deficits. Uh, it's hard to turn that by itself into an issue, but you attach it to something that seems to affect people's everyday lives, like inflation or the potential for a tax increase, or on the other side, potential for cuts in Medicare or something, that becomes a potent political issue. And we're going to hear about it in 2024, I think. And of course, uh, neither party wants to address the issue of Social Security either, because so many people, uh, are again, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, are, are concerned about any changes to that. One that way they or are. And the thing about it is, Don, uh, we, in, in our lifetimes, we have seen that when serious politicians treat Social Security seriously and come up with a solution that nobody loves but everybody can live with, I'm thinking of the 1983 reform package that saved it for a long time. That was Ronald Reagan, a Republican, a bunch of Republican congressional leaders, a bunch of Democratic congressional leaders. They made a deal. They changed the benefit structure and the tax structure, and people got over it. And that's what I think would happen if they did something like that. Now, people would be worried and upset about it at first, but it's got to be done. I mean, there's no alternative. It just if we don't do something in just a few years, Social Security checks will be automatically cut, which no one's going to stand for that. So we have to do something about it. And I would think that these politicians should do something about it in 2025 and not be terrified that it would be the end of their careers. It wasn't the end of the Democrats in Congress in 1983. It wasn't the end of Ronald Reagan. He was reelected the following year with 49 states. <laughs> so the notion that you can't touch Social Security or it'll zap you, I think, is another one of these myths that persists and is, it is belied by the, by the available empirical data. You know, one of the th interesting things about inflation is that uh, as people drive around town, they see signs all over town about the price of gas. And when the price of gas comes down, I assume that there's a lot less concern about inflation than when the price of gas goes up. Uh, so, you know, trying to predict what the price of gas will be at, by election time is almost impossible. But that Agreed. could be a big factor. Oh, it absolutely could. I mean, there are two things at least 
that sort of act as surrogates for inflation in people's minds. You mentioned one of them when it's posted and you see it all the time and you, people keep track of how much gas costs because, of course, they have to do it. They have to pump it and pay for it. The other thing would be the price of eggs and milk, something else that almost everybody, although every household buys. That's one of the things because those prices went up. That's one of the things that really turned people off about the economy. Um, so you're right. We can't predict those particular prices. They're much more visible than other prices that people pay. Not everybody's in the housing market all the time. Not everybody's out buying other kinds of goods and services, but they buy something like dairy products and they buy motor fuel. And so those those things they see. And even though those have, have changed in, in recent months, the trajectory has changed. Biden didn't get any credit for it because it went up so much earlier and people still remember that and they blame him. Exactly. Our guest is John Hood, and uh, we have one final segment. We want to talk just a brief amount of time when we come back about John's latest uh, writings, whether they be some of the more serious writings he's done or some of the uh, the fiction that he's writing. Uh, we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything, helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people, a neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When is the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Well, we're back with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. And John, we have failed to talk about your latest writings. You have authored nine books thus far. One, uh, the most recent one is a, is a fantasy novel entitled Forest Folk. Uh, and that is a sequel to uh, Mountain Folk. So are you going to have another one called Coastal Folk or? Very close. Or the Carolina third... Folk or uh, State Folk <laughs> or what's next? Uh, it, it is called Water Folk. That is, the third, okay. that is the third. I, I was originally going to call it, you know, river folk or something. But then I, some of the story actually happens on the ocean. So I had to be a little more generic in my reference. So all of these are set in American history. Mountain folk occurs primarily during the Revolutionary War period. Forest folk occurs primarily during the early 1800s, the War of 1812, westward expansion, the Trail of Tears, those kinds of events. Water folk occurs primarily in the 1830s and 1840s, includes the Alamo and Mexican War and adventures on the high seas. 
and other exciting moments in American history featuring presidents and famous people like Davy Crockett and Sam Houston, but also uh, various fantasy and uh, folklore characters. Uh, one of the main characters of Water Folk uh, is a monster that captains a, a ship that that, go, that goes across the high seas and does various exciting things. So it, what I like to do is mix two things I love, which is American history and speculative fiction. And so Water Folk will be the third novel in my Folklore Cycle series. People can read all about my series at FolkloreCycle.com. And I don't just write novels, I also write shorter stories in the, in the cycle. So there are also other stories that people could read that are set mostly in North Carolina. I depict the burning of the North Carolina Capitol, for example, in 1831. A little story about that. I've got another story coming out that will involve a certain famous giant lumberjack in the northwest of America. Uh, so I, I enjoy these stories. And, you know, they seem often more real and less crazy than politics. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's a nice refuge. Although this year may be an exception to that. Uh, we'll see. It's pretty wild. You're right. It's pretty wild and wacky out there. Uh, you know, uh, most of the economists last year this time were talking about a recession and inflation. So obviously uh, the economists can be wrong. But uh, most of the economists that I'm reading now are saying that uh, as the year advances this year, it's likely that interest rates will drop. Not a great deal, but will drop. Um, and if nothing else happens uh, that uh, causes a change in the economy uh, by next uh, uh, October or November, when people are making their final choices, uh, the economy may be more stable than it is now. How does that affect uh, the uh, presidential race? Uh, and of course, you've already said that uh, it's highly likely that uh, the two leading candidates right now uh, the incumbent president and the former president, one or two of those two, or maybe even both, might not be on the ballot. Yeah, so let, let's imagine for a moment that they are. And that the economy, I, th I think the economists, I mean, they were they were right that all most of the traditional measures a year ago suggested there was a risk of recession. It didn't happen, and thank goodness for everybody concerned. Uh, but imagine that the economy continues to perk along pretty well. Uh, then does Biden get a boost of support. People say, you know, actually that Joe Biden, he's not, he's not as bad as I thought. I'm going to vote him for re-election. Maybe. The problem is that whether it is Donald Trump or Joe Biden, people's perceptions of these, these men are kind of baked already. That cake is baked and it's out of the oven. It's not going back in the oven. And I'm just not sure that it matters a whole lot. Again, I'm not saying whether it should matter. I mean, there are lots of things, not just the economy, but events overseas or other kinds of events that have happened that could, in theory, change people's perceptions of Trump and Biden. I just think that they are so hard. People have such strong feelings, and it is largely negative. They'll tolerate Biden because they hate Trump. They'll tolerate Trump because they're going to hate Biden. Now, obviously, there's some, you know, third or so or 30 percent or so of the two electorates who love Trump and love Biden, but most everybody else is kind of living with them, maybe because they detest the other person. And it is very hard to change those kinds of perceptions once they get baked. That's why I think, and I've said this earlier, but maybe this is a better explanation for it. Imagine that the Democratic Party, uh, thanks to Biden sort of coming to his senses or whatever, he ends up with a different candidate by the summer of 2024. That candidate can say, now I'm not Joe Biden, 
And I wasn't responsible for the decisions that were made that may have fueled inflation three or four years ago. But things are going pretty well, and I can make them do even better. Now, that kind of Democratic candidate could benefit from the fact that the economy wouldn't, wouldn't be in such a mess, because that candidate still has room for people to form an opinion about that person, like a governor of you know, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, or some other kind of governor running as a Democrat saying, I'll, I, I will carry out some of Biden's policies, but some of them I won't. I wasn't around to create the problem that you don't, that, that made you so angry two years ago. Now, that kind of Democrat could benefit. Similarly, imagine that contrary to expectations, we end up with a recession in 2024. I mean, after all, the economists thought there'd be one in 23 and they were wrong. Now they don't think there'll be one. So a contrarian would say, aha, there'll be a recession. So imagine for the sake of argument, there'll be a recession in 2024. This ought to benefit Donald Trump, right? Except that almost no one has failed to form an opinion about him. So there's not much room there. But if, for example, Nikki Haley or some other Republican were the nominee, then that would give that Republican a chance to really go after Biden and or whoever the Democrat is and benefit and maybe not just win a squeaker, but win comfortably in 2024. So you can imagine scenarios where something like, is there going to be a recession or not? Is there going to be a healthy economy or not? Is determinative of which party not only wins, but wins convincingly. The problem is this scenario assumes people other than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I don't see Donald Trump winning in a landslide. I don't see Joe Biden winning in a landslide. There's just too many fixed opinions about these two folks. John, uh, I want to get your opinion on, uh, because age is a factor with both candidates. It, it seems to be a bigger factor with Biden, but uh, Trump is, of course, no spring chicken either. So the public is going to be very, very interested in the vice presidential uh, running mate of these two. Do you see Biden changing? Uh, and who uh, uh, do you think Trump will turn to? You may not uh, assuming those president. two are the nominees. Yeah, uh, I don't think Biden can change the vice president. If, if he runs, if he goes all the way through and Kamala Harris is somehow dumped off the ticket. I mean, I don't think she's been a very effective member of the administration. I don't think she should have been selected in the first place, but she was elected. And I, I think that might do a tremendous amount of damage. Now, if Biden steps down and she runs, but other people run and she doesn't get the nominee, that that nomination, I think that might work out okay. But not if he stays on the ballot and she leaves. I don't think that will fly with the Democratic base. So I don't think that'll happen, even though it might help him a little bit. As for Donald Trump, Trump actually gave an interview recently where he said, and this is a kind of uncharacteristic of me to say, but this was kind of an astute point because Donald Trump said, I've looked over the history and I just can't see that much evidence VP matters. And he's right. It almost never matters. The thing is, though, he's wrong about 2024 because these are two candidates, both Biden and Trump, who are elderly and not. Let, let, I mean, look, look, let's say they're not just they're not even you're right. They're not spring chickens. I mean, I'm not even sure they are chickens. I mean, there's like some other kind of fowls. And Watch he, it. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just was making an analogy. Oh, and and yeah. I think that they, uh, I mean, they're not even, I mean, if, if they're chickens, they, they're not even fall chickens. They're like early winter chickens. <laughs> and so the voters really care, I think, about what happens if either of these presidents, if they are elected, 
does can't make it all the way through. And I think there's no. more going to be a focus on vice president than ever before. I think all the arguments that the previous uh, elections tell us something are wrong because we have never had, literally never had, two geriatric uh, candidates with difficulty expressing themselves in complete sentences. Both of them I'm talking about. We've never had them something like that on the ballot for president before. So I think the vice presidential nominations matter a lot. And I'll have to tell you, it's one of the Republicans' challenges with Trump, if he's the nominee, is somebody who runs with him on the ticket, That's their that, that will define their careers. And I'm not sure how many Republicans really want to be defined by being vice president to Donald Trump's presidential nominee. I'm just not sure. So I'm not sure who will say yes to this that can actually help Trump, but we'll see. Is Pence dead? Uh, no, uh, he's very much alive and healthy and living in Indiana. Uh, Pence will be a senior statesman in the Republican Party. He could be proud of a lot of things he accomplished in his political career, but absolutely becoming vice president, although it was in some ways, I mean, if you read the histories of the Trump administration, the fact that Pence was vice president was very helpful to the country. If he hadn't been there, there'd been a lot of things happened that might have gone really, really sideways. But it is true that the people who love Trump got angry at Pence because he wouldn't go along with the silly January 6th scheme. And the people who don't like Trump haven't really been able to get around Pence either because they don't like Trump and they think that he enabled Trump and, and was too close to him. So Pence ended up without a political constituency. I think that history will look more kindly on him particularly his role on January 6th, which was noble and correct. But you're right that it did affect negatively his immediate political prospects. And that's what I'm saying is that what about other Republicans? Would they want to get into a position where uh, their political career is determined determined by what Donald Trump tweets at three o'clock in the morning? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be in that situation. Well, it's it's interesting, uh, as you said, uh, someone is going to have to look at it and say, does this do me in as a future candidate, uh, or does it set me up? Because in all likelihood, or not in all likelihood, but, but there's a possible. great possibility that neither one of these, if elected, would complete their term because of age. That's a fair point. You know, they could say, this isn't so much like Don, uh, Mike Pence. This is maybe someone who becomes president, Calvin Coolidge becoming yeah. president one year into the term of the elected president. Maybe yeah. that's the scenario. There are lots of Republicans out there who'd like to be president, so it might happen, but it's kind of sad that this is the situation we're talking about. Who might be the vice presidential candidates because the presidential candidates are, are so uh, unworthy? Yeah. At least in my view. Well, you know, like you said many times during this program, this is a unique election, not only federally, but also in the state of North Carolina. John, thank you so much for taking time and, and uh, giving us your thoughts on the upcoming primary, which is coming sooner rather than later. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong and Christine Bellino, who has been assisting today. Uh, we will be back next week with another interesting guest. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com. So until next week, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. 
Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.